Please open your Bibles to the book of Jude. How many of you know where Jude is? Now, I'm not talking about the Beatles song. We know, we understand that, right? We understand that Jude quite possibly may have been one of the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes con- comment about being connected with James. And we understand historically that James, not the apostle, because James the apostle was killed early in the book of Acts as the church was being uh, persecuted by Herod, but by James, who later became one of the leaders in the early church, who was a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Jude writes a letter, and it's not a very long letter, it's just one chapter, it's found right before the book of Revelation. But it's interesting in terms of the intent of this letter. And so that's where I want us to spend our time this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 as we prepare for our study of the Word. It's our privilege to be studying the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Therefore, out of respect and reverence for the author of Scripture, please stand for the reading of His Word this morning. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once of all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us great wisdom and insight as we look into your word this morning and as we seek to apply it in the lives that we live. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, again, as we, as we introduce this book, uh, we do believe Jude was a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just like his brother James, he became a leader in, in the early church. And uh, he's writing a, a letter to the people. The letter was probably written uh, somewhere during the time period of Second of Peter, mid-60s, something like that, because of what we find historically. And, and he's talking about the fact that uh, I, I wanted to write you a letter about our common salvation. You know, maybe he wanted to, to encourage the people. Maybe he wanted to share some some great doctrinal truths, whatever, but uh, he wanted to write them this nice letter, maybe a fuzzy letter. And yet, he says that he found it necessary, in other words, that there was a heavy burden laid upon him that the letter he had to write was a letter that was going to encourage them strongly to contend for the faith. The faith that, that he describes that was, 
that was delivered to the saints. In other words, there was something going on within the church that caused James, to, excuse me, that caused Jude to have such a burden that he would write to the people that, that, that they would contend for their fight, their faith. The word contend talks about fighting for their faith. The particular Greek word that's used here is the word from which we get agonize. And Jude goes on to talk about the fact that that the reason we need to do that, guys, is because people have crept in unnoticed. Now, the phraseology crept in unnoticed is the picture of, man, these people have snuck into the body of Christ. People who are, who are distorting grace and people who are denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a practical reason here and there's a theological reason here that's laid upon Jude in such a way that he asks the people, he appeals to the people, he exhorts the people, he implores the people that they contend for the faith. In other words, they fight for what they believe. Now, this particular word, contend, that is used here is used in several of Paul's letters, which makes reference to the struggle in, in terms of, of ministry, as Paul's talking about uh, his, uh, his discipling people, his nurturing people. And he says, for this I toil, struggling. That's the word agonize here. And later in the book of Colossians, he uses it, to describe his concern for those people in Colossae as he talks about struggling on their behalf. It's used also in 1 Timothy 6.12 where Paul literally talks about fighting the good fight of faith. Now, as we look at the implications of what he's talking about here, we've got to understand the essence of the problem. When, when, when Jude is, is exhorting these people to agonize over their faith, to contend for the faith, the faith, faith that was delivered to the saints, there were obviously challenges that shook him up. I want to look maybe at, at what some of these challenges may have been and then seek to apply it to where we are today. Jude says, first of all, the fact that they crept in. And, 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 and as we think in terms of, of this creeping in, it's the picture of, uh, uh, you know, kind of sneaking in. It's kind of like, Somebody not walking through that door and saying, hey, I'm a liberal and I'm about to contaminate everything you believe. But it's the picture of the, of the subtleness that comes. It's the, it's the picture of, of using the, the, the right words, but, but maybe a different definition. Or maybe, maybe making it sound so sweet that... that uh, uh, that we're not discerning enough or in a very practical manner. And this is what Tim is going to be going through on May 8th. And I encourage you again, guys, you can go to Presbytery. It's in Macomb, what's two hours? 
And you can be there as he's examined. Why, why do we examine in the Presbyterian church? Do, do we just want to cause guys to lose sleep? No, it's, it's to see in terms of his biblical commitments. And so we examine to make sure that the man's views have not changed so that when he gets behind this microphone, gets behind this, uh, uh, this, uh, this lectern on this podium, you see, he will be faithful to the Scriptures. Because whether we like it or not, and you look at every denomination, why was there a PCA? Why was there an Orthodox Presbyterian church? Why is there a United Reformed Church now? Because people crept in and doctrinal positions changed. And in order to preserve the truth, what had to happen? The PCA had to come into existence. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church had to come into existence. And by the way, if, if you've never read anything by J. Gresham Machen, I would encourage you to read this man, he was the great hero of the faith who stood up against the liberalism that was infesting the Northern Presbyterian Church, UPUSA. And they literally kicked him out of their denomination because he stood for biblical truth. And historically, uh, he and a bunch of other professors from Princeton went down and started what today we know as Westminster in Philadelphia. And this was the beginning of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Very similar to the beginning of the Presbyterian Church of America. Now, you please understand, that's not how the Southern Presbyterian Church began. We know that, right? You know, 1861, they're going to meet in Philadelphia, going to keep the church together. And uh, the first resolution on the floor is that the Presbyterian Church go on record in support of the Union. So all the Southerners got up, walked down to Augusta, and that was the beginning of the Southern Presbyterian Church. Nothing theological about it. We're talking about that which has come in and contaminated the church. The first thing Jude makes reference of is those who take grace and, and, and turn it into something that is licentious. Sensuality is the word he uses. In other words, they, they open the door in terms of, oh, you're saved by grace. So, wow, you can do whatever you want to do and experience more grace. You know, the law has been forgotten. We, we live under grace. We're not under the law anymore. What they've taken is, is taken the gospel and they've literally destroyed it because, because God calls us to be holy. Yes, we're saved by grace. That's because we couldn't earn it. We couldn't, we couldn't save ourselves. Grace is a gift. But it's a gift that doesn't open the door for us to do whatever ungodly things we want to do. It's a gift that puts us under the law of God, which we now obey because of our love for the Lord. Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment? 
And his response was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And the second one is like unto it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. John fourteen fifteen, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We know we're not saved by the law. We can't do that. We can't earn our way to heaven. But the law is the standard by which we live our lives as those who are saved. Those who've been set aside to serve the Savior. I'm reminded of the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you haven't read the latest book, the latest biography on Bonhoeffer, you need to. This comes from his book, Cost of Discipleship as he's looking at the German culture, and he experienced somewhat of somewhat of the Presbyterian culture in the north as well during his lifetime. But he says that uh, where, where, where the, the, the cheapening of Christianity until it becomes a set of prepositions assented to, of acts performed, of rituals observed, rather than It's what he called cheap grace, you see, the cheapening of Christianity, rather than the vibrant, vital, personal relationship with Jesus, which inflames, invigorates, and permeates every aspect of political, social, and personal life. But see, we we fall into into the trap of cheapening grace. We make it legalistic rather than the vibrant, vital, personal relationship with Jesus that inflames, invigorates, permeates. Jude also says they actually deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind that this was not new. Paul said in Acts 20, Verses 28 through 30, as he talked with the elders of Ephesus, uh, that, uh, that, that there were going to be those from inside the church. Don't be leery of just those from outside, but those who are inside. Also, Peter spoke of this. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. As Peter reinforces the words of Paul in terms of those from inside. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. John deals with the same thing. So the principle is here, as we wrestle with this, that we are called to contend earnestly for the historic Christian faith, which is being corrupted from the inside. That's the challenge. And that's the call to contend earnestly. Now, As we wrestle with this, and we're going to start looking at some practical applications here. We need to understand that historically, and I've already made reference to it somewhat, we need to understand historically 
that almost every denomination has slipped into liberalism. You can look at it historically, and we see it time and time and time again. A man I greatly respect, Henry Henry Crobendom, had made the statement years ago that every seminary, after 30 years, you ought to blow it up and start all over again. Because usually, the conservative, Bible-believing life of a seminary is one generation. And then man from the inside, begins to contaminate the truth of the Word of God. Again, as we think of the uh, Presbyterian Church of America and, and coming into its existence, we used to sit there and say, oh, look at, these, the, the, look at the guys the seminaries are putting out, like it's the seminary's fault. And in a way it is, because they're teaching these seminarians garbage, and they come out and what do they do in the pulpits? Give us garbage, and it stinks. But, who sat there and listened to it? Who let these guys into our presbyteries? One of my favorite stories is of the conversion of Abraham Kuyper. Here's another guy. If you haven't read anything by Kuiper, you need to. His book, Lectures on Calvinism, classic work. He came out of seminary liberal, went to Free University in Amsterdam and was ministering there in the Netherlands and he was visiting all the people in his congregation and he came to the house of a retired maid. How much education does it take to be a maid? But guys... She knew her Bible. And she sat him down at the table and she confronted him with the fact that he was not preaching the Christ of the Scriptures. And it was through that confrontation that this man came to know Jesus. Nobody remembers the name of this retired maid anymore, but here's a man who may have influenced millions through his preaching, his teaching, his writings. Because he was confronted by a little old lady who knew her Bible. As we think about what Jude is calling us to do here is exactly, the, is, is exactly right. He's not talking just to preachers. Now, preachers need to know their stuff too. But he's not talking just to preachers. He's talking to all Christians. Contend for the faith. Agonize for your faith. Because it's being compromised. And it's being compromised from the inside, not from the outside. And if we don't know our faith, that's when we get sucked in. Therefore, please understand, it's not just the preacher who's to know his Bible. But whom? One of the great principles of the Reformation is the priesthood of all believers. Why did Luther want the Bible written in German? Why did Wycliffe translate the Bible into English? In the old Luther film, the black and white one, which may be even better than the new one, 
well, new, it's about 10 years old now, but one of Luther's teachers is, is, you know, is talking to him about, hey, what do you mean putting the Bible in the language of people? Why would you want to do that? And Luther's response is, so there might be more Christians. In other words, as the people read their Bibles, they may come to know the Lord. Because at that time, Bible was written in Latin. Who were the only ones who knew Latin? The priests. Therefore, the people were held captive. Why? If the priests said such and such, they had to believe that's what the Bible said because they couldn't read the thing. So they were captive. The glory of the doctrine of priesthood of all believers is that all of us are responsible to know the Word and to be able to use that Word. In fact, I would put before you a challenge. If you can show for me the Scriptures, if you, you can show to me from the Scriptures that only preachers are to know the Bible, then I'll, I'll take you out to wherever you want to eat. And I'll pay for it. But, flip side works too. If I can show you from the Scriptures that it's not only my responsibility or Tim's responsibility, but it's also your responsibility to know the Word, then I get to choose where we go eat, and you pay for it. All of us are called to contend for the faith, to agonize for the faith. That means... Number one, you have to know what you believe. You have got to know what you believe. You have got to know and have experienced a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is the only means by which we can be saved. And you've got to know that faith is founded upon your faith. Faith in Christ. And the living out of that faith is motivated by your love for the Lord, demonstrated through your obedience. These are all Scripture verses, by the way. And manifested in your personal holiness. Can you tell me where those verses are? Motivated by your love is 2 Corinthians 5.14, where Paul says it's the love of Christ moves me. John 14:15 says, "If you love me, you will obey." The desire for personal holiness is 1 Peter chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 where Paul says that we're to pursue holiness. See? What is your view of scripture? Please understand, brothers and sisters, that scripture is the inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God. How do I know that? Where will I go to see that? Where? Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, as Peter is, is, is encouraging Timothy within the context of, of, of knowing that he's going to be challenged. He tells him, all Scripture is inspired by God. 
and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness that the man of God will be equipped for. And watch out for the little words in Scripture. For every good work. Therefore, we say Scripture is the only rule of faith and practice. Well, if it is the only... Oh, and by the way, the picture of inspiration is given to us in 2 Peter chapter 1 within the context of Peter talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Wow, that would have been an exciting experience. But, But Peter says, wait a minute, guys, you've got something much better. You've got the Word that is not a matter of one's own interpretation, but men who were moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. So that God wanted exactly what, God wrote exactly what He wanted written as He took John and and as He took Isaiah and as He took Peter and He took Paul and took Moses and moved them by means of the Holy Spirit. So if you don't like what the Word says, your problem's not with Paul or Peter or Moses. Your problems with the Lord. And we've got to know that word, brothers and sisters, as we seek to live our lives in such a way that exalts the Lord. Because He tells us how we're to live our lives. In a distinctive manner that's going to honor Him. The Scripture. You want to read it. You want to memorize it. Oh, the beauty of of Scripture memory, not only a tremendous educational discipline, but of great benefit to you. David talks about, I writing God's Word on my heart that I might not sin against Him. And then you need to live it. For the reality of the Word is demonstrated by the way that we live our lives. Why, why in the book of Acts were the Bereans considered uh, a, uh, a faithful people? You remember? Checked out the Scriptures. Now, in those days, the only Scriptures they had was what? The Old Testament. But they heard Paul preach and they checked him out before they received him. And they were considered a noble people as a result. In other words, we're supposed to have the ability because uh, false prophets are going to come. Okay? That, 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 and, and we see this in Matthew 7, that, that we can examine those false prophets to know. Well, how are we going to know if we don't know the Word? We're the ones who are supposed to know it. We're the ones who are supposed to have the ability to determine what's good or what's evil. For example, it sounds great when somebody comes before you and says, Oh, the Bible contains the Word of God. Got a problem with that? You better. The Bible is the Word of God. Oh, the Bible is that which speaks to you. Great. 
some things speak to me differently when I have indigestion and when I haven't slept very well. No. The Bible is God's Word, whether it quote-unquote moves me or not. It's God's Word. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. But brothers and sisters, if you don't know how to use it, what good are you? In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's talking about the Roman soldier. And as he goes through the armor, you know, the, talks about the girdle and the breastplate and the in the sandals, in the, in, the, in the helmet, in the shield. And he makes reference to the sword. And what does he call it? He calls it the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. Do you realize that militarily speaking, that Paul was looking within his culture at what he considered the most powerful weapon in the world? Historically, we know that Rome's army literally were head and shoulders above every other army they faced, primarily. And we know that Rome ruled the world because of the effectiveness of their army. And one of the things that was, uh, that was critical to that was their, their, the way they developed instruments of war. And, and one of them was the development of the short sword. The sword was probably this much in length. Here was your handle. So you had a cutting blade of maybe a foot, foot and a half. But the thing was, it was cut. You had a cutting edge on both sides. And it was an outstanding and effective instrument of war when armies came together in hand-to-hand combat. Listen, if, if you've never watched the movie The Gladiator... Watch the first, first 15 minutes, then turn it off. But 15, first 15 minutes, you see the effectiveness of the Roman army. Okay, You get in hand-to-hand combat and you're wielding this sword rather than having to you know, hold these things with two hands. You know, you're going to decimate the enemy. And they work together as a team. You see these, the, 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 these groups of men marching across the field almost like a tank. You know, shields on the side and shields on the top so they were protected from the arrows, from the spears, and move across that field until they come into contact with the enemy and use that sword. Now, obviously, when the Roman soldier got to boot camp and was presented with this sword, He had to learn how to use it, which is why they would begin with wooden swords so they wouldn't cut themselves up or cut their buddies up as they were preparing to go into battle. Today, you go to boot camp, you're given a weapon. And you get to know that weapon very well so that even blindfolded, you can take it apart, put it back together again in seconds time. Why? Because in the midst of the battle, if your weapon jams, what good are you? You've got to be able to fix that thing and get it working again. Christians, how many of you can do that with the Scripture? The Scripture is our weapon against falsehood. The Scripture is our weapon against that which is trying to contaminate our faith because you have the great wisdom of man coming into the picture and altering the truth of God. And what does that do to the people of God? 
If the sheep don't know the word, they'll follow anything that comes along that sounds great. Jude says, contend. Agonize for the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because people have crept in and they're destroying. So, brothers and sisters, know the Word. Know that if you love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, if you've experienced the personal relationship that comes through receiving Him by faith and faith alone, that your life is to be changed. Your life is to be revolutionized because the Scripture is to so grip your heart that you want it to mold and shape you. Parents, be training your children in the Lord. In the things of the Word, may they memorize Scripture. Catechism is great, but still, catechism is not Scripture. In our heritage, our confessions and our catechisms are the most biblical tools, instruments of learning. But Scripture needs to be paramount. We need to know the Word that we can feast upon it, that we can be what the Lord wants us to be, that we can be the salt and the light. And oh, oh by the way, yeah, book of church orders, not scripture. But when you join a church, do you remember your membership vows? Do you you know that that one of them talked about you making a commitment to defend the peace and purity? You remember that? Of the church? You remember that? How can you defend the peace and the purity of the church if you don't know the Scripture? I encourage you. Contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for the strength and the courage to be what You want us to be. There is much that has crept into the church, much garbage, dear Father, that is being taught and it's leading people astray. Lord, give us the courage, the strength, the ability to understand the truth of the Word and to seek to be faithful, not because we're being judgmental or legalistic, but because we love Jesus. And we've understood the beauty of His grace. And we've come to know the reality of His person. And, we're, and we want to be faithful. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.